Angela, the U.S. Surgeon General uh, said a couple months ago that we have a mental health crisis on our hands. Um, how, how are young people doing these days? I think Vivek Murthy, as a, a, an observer of young people, um, had been making a very um, important comments on how important mental health is to physical health long before the pandemic. Um, and now what I think we've seen with teenagers and the rest of us over the last couple of years is that, wow, these things are really intertwined, like our mental health, our physical health, our academic engagement if we're students. Here's what I found in research, Tom, that I did by using data on high school students. We had uh, survey responses from a large sample uh, of and a diverse sample of high school students before the pandemic. And then also um, sort of midway through the pandemic when students were either in remote schooling entirely, meaning they were uh, pretty much isolated from not only their peers, but also like anybody else outside their nuclear family. And then in the same school district, we had high school students who were doing full-time in-person schooling. And it's a little bit of a, a natural experiment, if you will, not a perfect one. Uh, but here's what we found, that compared to the students who were in school and therefore seeing people outside of their family, you know, friends and teachers and so forth, um, students who were uh, isolated in this remote schooling context suffered emotionally, socially, and academically. And I just want to read you a, a question like, you know, in your school, do you feel like you fit in? How happy have you been feeling these days? You know, do you feel like you can succeed in your classes if you tried? Those kinds of questionnaire items, you know, 201, uh, students who were truly isolated uh, declined compared to where they were before the pandemic. So in sum, I think Vivek Murthy uh, and, you know, every teacher um, and parent who has noticed that there's been a lot of stress uh, in the last couple of years and continuing, if not worse right now, um, I think they're spot on. And if there's any message I would like to underscore is just that this is a complicated issue, of course, but I do think we are understanding how these are intertwined, that when a child or an adolescent is not feeling happy, not feeling accepted, not feeling confident, not feeling connected, that, you know, this is intimately intertwined to their academic performance, their, their, their everything. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderark, and today I'm joined by Dr. Angela Duckworth. She's a professor at Penn. She's the co-founder of the Character Lab, the author of Grit, a bestseller that reveals the secrets of achievement uh, as being passion and persistence. And she is the co-host of a fabulous podcast no, called No Stupid Questions um, with her co-host, Stephen Dubner. Welcome, Angela. Hi, Tom. It's really good to be here with you. I love that podcast. You, uh, you have a ball doing it with Stephen, don't you? Yeah, I think Stephen and I like were like in another life. We must have been brother and sister. You were. I, you, know, we like <laughs> you you guys have a great time, and you take on beautiful questions. Thank you. I I, I think one thing that Stephen and I share in in common is uh, curiosity, and I I think that's something you and I share as well. I love that you did a great episode with his sidekick uh, Steve Levitt on people Steve's I mostly admire. <laughs> Steve is uh, also a, a social scientist. He's an economist. And so um, uh, I'm a psychologist. He's an economist. Stephen Dubner's a journalist. Uh, but we are all fascinated with human nature. And yeah. so we never run out of things to talk about. I love how Levitt is so wonderfully awkward and odd. Um, <laughs> 
And I will tell him you said that. And beautifully curious, right? I, I think you, you guys do all share that in common. Yeah. Well, um, um, I recommend his podcast for sure. It's awesome. He's been racking up some um, extraordinary guests. Uh, so I, I love, love it. Uh, and I uh, appreciate no stupid questions. Um, Angela, you and I both had uh, the chance to be around some real human beings last week in Austin at uh, South By. Super appreciated the session that you did on uh, creating um, an R&D infrastructure for education. Um, R&D into human development is arguably the most important thing that we could study, but it, um, it's really been underinvested for, for decades Maybe you could comment on why is that and why is it important to to really have a strong um, infrastructure for studying how we grow human beings? You know, for all of us interested in kids, and that's anybody who's with us, with us in this conversation, you, you know, you might ask the straightforward question, why is education, you know, and I'm thinking about K-12 education, but you could extend this, uh, you know, to education earlier or later, you know, why why isn't there more innovation in education? I mean, most of us, you know, the way we went to school, the way we learned, the sorts of books that we were using, the rhythm of our year isn't all that different from, you know, I'll speak as a mother, you know, I have an 18 year old and a 20 year old and high school for them was pretty much what high school was like for me. Um, and I could say that again, you know, if I think about what high school was like for my dad and mom, not that different. So there's not a lot of innovation. There's not a lot of really good research. Um, uh, uh, and, and the contrast I would like to give is medicine, right? The life expectancy for an average human being has nearly doubled in the last century. And, uh, and, and why? Because there's been innovation and there's been research and development in medicine. So I'm kind of astonished that we haven't kept up in, and as you point out, Tom, like what could be more important than, you know, how our young people are growing up? Um, I think to me, the big barriers are um, multiple, but I'll just name the one, which is like, it's really hard, I think, to take an institution that wasn't built for research. If you think about most hospitals and like how medicine is transacted and medical schools and so forth, the whole business, if you will, was built on R&D from, from the very beginning, at least in modern times. And that's a big paradigm shift for education. It, it is, you know, um, and you, you could also notice this at, at South by, in the South by EDU and the South by that follows. In, in healthcare and biotech, almost every startup is linked to basic science, right? The innovation starts in science and then it's, um, it's monetized through a startup. In education, most ed tech companies start because some dude's um, sister is a teacher and she complained at Thanksgiving about something in her class. So he coded uh, solutions, but it's right. So it, it's anecdotal and disconnected from the thin, historically thin um, basic research that we have about human development. So that's what I so appreciated about your session was that we need a stronger link to basic research I couldn't agree more. And that's a very interesting observation uh, that you've made. Um, you may have thought of this uh, longer than I have. I don't know fully why there are so many apps and other kinds of like exciting things in like media or entertainment um, or games, but like not in learning or like, you know, you know, you know, development, if you think broadly about what you know children are doing. 
<laughs> no, it's just it has been a terrible market. It, it's uh, challenging from from a lot of respects for the people that have tried to build solutions in edtech. Um, anyway, it, it's exciting to see a lot more investment going both into into R and D infrastructure as well as into edtech. But I want to talk about character. Um, you, you've really devoted your professional life to the study of character. Um, how do you define what that is and why is it important? It's a great pivot to make in this conversation, Tom, in part because when I was at South by, as you know, I was talking about a research platform called Character Lab Research Network, and it was, uh, you know, really the brainchild of a uh, of a young scientist named Sean Talamus, who grew up in uh, Miami, Florida, and himself benefited from a few psychologically wise adults in his life. Um, and then he grew up to get his own PhD in psychology. And his idea was, you know, what we need more of these insights into how you know kids need to be talked to, how they need to be supported. Let's actually create a platform where world-class scientists can work with educators everywhere and anywhere and actually conduct more research on growth mindset or on belonging or curiosity or humility, honesty, and so forth. And, and I, I, I think that's what character is. All of the things that every caring adult wants young people to develop for the good of themselves and for others. That's Aristotle's definition of character. Everything you can think of that you want your own son or daughter, that you want your own students to develop for their good and for the good of others. And the list is so long that we can't spend the rest of our time just you know rattling off like, oh, and here's another character strength. And you're going to say, Angela, what about this one? But I think the place that so many young people do develop these strengths is school. You know, I think there's a controversy um, about whether school is or isn't an appropriate place uh, for for these strengths, which um, I should just say, some people prefer the term social emotional competencies. Some people say life skills. Some people say personal qualities. I personally don't care what they're called, but I think there's remarkable consensus among all of these adults, uh, you know, parents, uncles, aunts, teachers, principals, superintendents, and policymakers, you know, it's kind of a no, no brainer that, you know, when I rattle off those things, we can all agree like, yeah, that sounds like a good thing for the kid, a good thing for society. And at least my position is that schools are a big part of, of the development of these strengths. I want to come back and, and talk about how we, how we describe these strengths and the, the role that school has, but you, you wrote um, r- recently about the conversation that's going on between ourselves and our circumstances, right? And that character is really what emerges from um, the, our own development, but it's it's heavily influenced by th- this dialectic with our context, right? Oh my gosh, Tom, you know, um, I, I hope we don't get too too nuanced here. I hope we don't lose everyone. But this to me is such an important conversation to have. Um, and and I do think that the context, you know, the situations, the homes, the neighborhoods, um, the the places where kids grow up uh, are, are really important. The reason I have to say that loudly as somebody who studies grit and somebody who studies character is that I think there's a mistaken either or 
um, mindset about these things. It's like, oh, it's either a kid's character or it's their context. And nothing could be more both and. I mean, again, let me speak as a mother, if not as a scientist. You know, when I think about my daughters, Amanda and Lucy, uh, whom I super love and I really enjoy, you know, and I ask myself like, well, how is it that my daughter can be majoring in math right now as a 20 year old, but really actually failed her first three tests in math when she was in eighth grade, right? I could say, well, that's because she has grit. That's because, you know, she's tough. You know what? That's such an incomplete and actually misleading answer. The real answer is that when she failed those three tests, she was in a context of 100% support. And I say that because my husband's a really great dad. So, you know, he sat with her, you know, we had these reams of scrap paper. I mean, my, my husband learned a lot of math that year, right? You know, they were doing math like, you know, like, you know, at church, like we were supposed to be like listening to the pastor, like they're, and the reason was not because, you know, my husband's a tiger dad. It was really because he felt like he had a young person in his life that he loved that was going to learn the wrong lesson. And the lesson was going to be, I'm stupid. And the lesson is that girls aren't good at math. And the lesson is like, you know, I'm not a math person. And he didn't care what she did afterward. He wanted her not to come out of that as like failure being the end of the story. So my daughter, Amanda, grew up in a context of support, encouragement, uh, personalized learning, if you will, because she had her dad as her tutor. When I think about character and context, I really do think of them as you say in a dance together and a conversation together, because one leads to the other, leads to the other, leads to the other. And so either or thinking when it comes to children, when it comes to policy, when it comes to education is to me so, um, you know, damaging, um, because if we don't embrace the complexity of both and, then we end up saying stupid things like, oh, kids just need more grit. Uh, or I think equally inaccurate is to say, oh, it's all about context. You know, we shouldn't worry about the development um, of, of kids' personal strengths either. It, it's both and. Given the both and, um, our, our mutual friend, uh, uh, Dr. Pamela Cantor, has, has been helping me understand the importance of context-specific measures. She really believes that we need to collect more specific information about the contexts that are influencing youth development. Do you, do you buy that proposition? But a couple of years ago, Tom, I, I began to ask myself a question, um, which is, you know, where as a as a researcher, can I actually get a measure of what is the context of kids and are they getting some of the basic necessities that they need to learn and grow? Um, and I asked my economist friends. I asked my psychologist friends. I asked my sociologist friends. I asked my public policy friends. Of course, I asked my educator friends. And nobody had a list. Nobody had even a simple index of, you know, do you have uh, somebody who can take you to the doctor if you're sick? Uh, nobody had an index that, uh, you know, said something about like whether um, a kid has, you know, basic reliable transportation to and from school. Um, if they wanted to play an instrument or play a sport, would that be possible in their life? Um, so I made a list of what I call the necessities index, and it has um, 10 items. Uh, I was um, uh, writing them down and, again, getting feedback from all the kinds of people that I mentioned, including teenagers now, when I started to actually get items on a page, and teachers my daughter, Amanda, the one I mentioned, she looks over my shoulder as she must have been on break or something. And she said, oh, what are you doing? Um, like she just read the 10 items. And I said, you look at these, what would you score? 
And it took her a half second. She said, 10, of course, who wouldn't score 10? And I said, not every kid in this country scores a 10, right? And we've now collected data from a very large representative sample of 50,000 high school students. Um, and I would say, um, you know, it's it's true that uh, half of students can say that there are nine or a 10, but that means that half of students are, are not getting, you know, two or more of these basic necessities. So I am increasingly interested in measuring uh, context factors that are invisible maybe to the classroom teacher. They certainly were invisible to me as a researcher. And it's a crude, crude instrument. It's a, you know, it's a butter knife trying to be a scalpel. But but I think it's the first step. I mean, I'm, as I say, astonished that there isn't something better out there. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's to me where I want to take my research. I, I want to say, you know, uh, I can make some inroads in understanding the context that enable uh, young people to thrive. And in my 20 years of being a scientist, I, I feel like I've made minimal inroads in that direction. In the last five years, particularly during the pandemic, we've seen schools around the world take what many of them call social emotional learning, sort of take that from the outside, the fringe part of their agenda and move it into the heart of the matter. We, we've seen thousands of schools and school systems in America embrace a, a broader learning set, of, uh, a broader set of goals. Uh, they call it a learner profile or a graduate profile. And that increasingly incorporates a lot of things that you would call character strengths or character traits one, is that a good idea? And two, um, assuming you agree with that, how, how would you recommend that schools express those character goals as along with uh, traditional academic goals? I want to say that I do think it's a good idea. Um, uh, there's a why and a how answer to this. Um, so yes, I think it's a good idea to have a broader agenda for for you know what schools feel like is you know the business of schools. Um, and I want to say what the why is, and that's pretty clear. And then I want to say something about the how schools should do that, and that's less clear. Um, the why is that. Um, let me just uh, give the example of Jim Heckman and his research. Jim Heckman is a an economist at the University of Chicago, and he won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2000. And I've had the good fortune to work with him on what he sometimes calls character and he sometimes calls non-cognitive skills. Again, the list goes on, right? SEL, 21st century skills, personal qualities. But what they have as their distinction is they're not the same thing that's measured as uh, on IQ or standardized achievement tests. So they are um, distinct from those measures of basic cognitive ability. And what Jim found in his research, actually subsequent to winning the Nobel Prize, if you ask me like, what has Jim been up to in the 22 years since he won the Nobel Prize, he's been establishing as a labor market economist that these strengths, these aspects of character, uh, they are as predictive of, of all the outcomes that economists and policymakers care about, you know, long-term income, employment, physical health, longevity, uh, not getting into crime, et cetera. Like they're as predictive, if not more than, than standardized tests and, and measures of cognitive ability like IQ tests. Um, so again, I want to say it's both and it doesn't mean that like, you know, we shouldn't teach kids academic things, but it just, it just says that, you know, wow, when you think about navigating life, you know, um, it's, it, it is, you know, your curiosity, your humility, your growth mindset, your optimism, you know, your ability to forge 
social relationships, et cetera. It's not just, I know how to do calculus, you know, I know grammar, um, uh, you know, I know how to solve this puzzle uh, on a piece of paper. So I think this revolution, this, you know, embracing, and it's not uniform. I think some schools and communities are embracing it, others are running away, but I vote yes on broadening the agenda for schools. I vote yes because of the why, you know, because research is crystal clear that these personal qualities matter. The how you asked about too, Tom, and I think that's a little harder because I don't know that we have a really uh, straightforward recipe yet. Um, I don't think the answer is entirely like, oh, like just buy this curriculum, you know, like set aside 45 minutes a week for character and you're done. It it can't be that simple. Um, But I'll just leave you with one thought about this, which is that I think the uh, the direction to go in is intentional modeling, and and it it means that teachers uh, and every other adult in that building uh, or in a student's life is a role model for them. And so I think there is a kind of implicit curriculum of character. When you grow up with kind people, when you see other people treated with genuine respect, you know, as a young person, like that's all you know to be kind and to be empathic and respectful when you grow up with the opposite, it's hard to learn those lessons. So there is modeling, but I say intentional modeling because I have seen the most successful coaches, teachers, and schools do this not accidentally, but intentionally. And yes, they do sometimes say things explicitly like, hey, our three values are curiosity, kindness, and humility. I, I, so I, I think some explicit emphasis, and yes, I do think in some circumstances, a curriculum uh, or, or learning can be extremely helpful. So intentional role modeling to me is directionally where the how goes. Yeah, I love that. Um, you, Angela, you just reminded me of uh, DSST in Denver, started as Denver uh, School of Science and Technology. It's now probably the biggest and best STEM, uh, high poverty STEM network in the country. They have a set of shared values that look a lot like character traits, and they have a common um, commitment to sharing feedback with each other um, on a regular basis, uh, at least monthly, often more frequently, around their shared values and how they're doing living into their shared values. So young people get feedback, but but um, the adults in the building also get feedback on how they're doing. And so I think that... That's a great example of enumerating important traits and then making it a commitment to to bring those traits alive in the culture of the school. I've heard a lot about that school, and I, um, I I think there's so much there that we can learn from. And feedback, I'm glad you brought that up, Tom, because if you ask me as a psychologist, you know, what is missing from the learning cycle for, for character or anything else? And so often, it really is feedback. You know, do, do you get feedback on when you're, you know, more or less curious? Like, do you get feedback on when you're more or less caring or kind? You know, or do you get feedback on your English composition? I mean, there's just not enough feedback in school. And as you know, Tom, my my day job, if you will, is studying excellence, you know, reverse engineering, um, you know, Olympic athletes and, and world-class achievers. And one thing that they have as a common feature is they are hungry for and, um, and blessed by feedback. You know, you can't be an Olympic skier unless you can see your own film and somebody says, hey, you know, try to lean a little farther to the left. Um, and so I love that example because, um, you know, if we can move, you know, a lot of things in education, honestly, but if we could shorten the feedback cycle, improve the feedback cycle, I think it would be enormously beneficial for character and everything else. 
One more um, comment that I'd, I'd love to have you um, reflect on. Our friend Karen Pittman um, often talks about the importance of a shared agenda between school and home and out-of-school providers. And she would argue that, that particularly character strengths um, are developed in all three of those locations. And, and some traits are more specific to being developed at home, some in, in out-of-school settings. Uh, she would say leadership traits, for example, that's a great place to, to do that in extracurricular or out-of-school environments. You, I guess you, you buy having a, a community agreement on traits that are most important and, and acknowledging that there's an important role in and out of school? If we think about school, family, and out-of-school commitments like sports, music, um, but you know, also church and other things like that or um, whatever uh, is going on in a, in a kid's life that's neither their family nor their school, but it's still some kind of like formalized activities, not just hanging out. You know, those are the three spheres. Those are the three contexts of, of a young person's life. Um, and I 100% agree that these you know, strengths are developed you know, in all three contexts. And I also agree um, that, you know, there, there's some that just seem appropriately or, you know, like, how are you going to do leadership, you know, in, 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 in your family? Like that's a little bit easier to do on the playing field or at the school newspaper, et cetera. So I, I think the idea that we recognize that these are the three major spheres of a young person's life. And I think as a developmental psychologist, I will say the more there is um, some consistency or harmony, you know, that, that, that when you, when you go to your calculus class or your, you know, your language arts class and your teacher talks about honesty in a certain way. And then, you know, you're practicing for, you know, your basketball game and your coach gives you that pregame and, and, and they talk about like not cheating during the game and what it means to like, you know, live a good faith, honest loss and like to be proud of yourself and hold your head high. Then you go home and, you know, your, your, your mom, your dad says like, oh, we got this refund and uh, yeah, this refund's a mistake, you know, and, and you, we're going to send it back. It's not our money, right? That that's where honesty comes from. Right. And when you had kids growing up and like two out of the three say this one out of three, you know, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't take much more than common sense to realize that that's not good. Um, Angela, I just, I wanted to let you know the, the tips that you've been posting on characterlab.org are fantastic. And, um, what I love given the conversation that we just had about the importance of school, home and, and out of school partners is that the tips, those collections that you've posted on character lab seem super relevant to all three. Is that, that was your intent? If I could have like a soapbox, you know, for the, you know, just like a really tall one and I could shout out anything I want, I'd say like, please go to characterlab.org and sign up for our tip of the week. Um, and, and I say our, not my, because um, what a tip of the week is, is a short, it's a 60 second tip um, based on science um, about how your child, you know, the child in your life, you know, your students, um, your son, your daughter uh, can grow up to thrive. And so we have experts. Um, um, uh, and I say experts, not, you know, I am a, I guess I'm a snob, Tom, like, you know, you, like, you know, when we had to write a judgment playbook, I got Danny Kahneman to write it. Like it's, 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 
<laughs> yeah, like we're like the best of the best in, in that domain. They write a tip specifically for parents and they usually start with a little story of something in their own life that illustrates it. And it always ends with either a, um, a try this or a don't and a do. So it's very actionable. It's linked to one scientific study. And I'll just give you the example that um, we had a month of tips. So four tips in a row written by uh, Bjork and Bjork. So this is a um, husband and wife team and they are the world experts in the science of learning. And I begged them. I said, look, you know, you spent your whole life understanding how children learn and the mistakes that are commonly made in schools. Please write a tip of the week, four, four in a row, so that parents can get smarter and teachers can get smarter and students can get smarter. And they did. And they did a fantastic job. Um, and we've had tips on kindness, on emotions. Um, I've written tips um, as well. But um, it's free because everything that we do as a nonprofit is supported 100% philanthropically. Um, so I, I wish I had a podium, but thank you, Tom. Um, I'm very indebted to you for sharing. Um, that's, that's kind of a, a you know, it's, it's my baby, right? I just, I would love for, for people to, um, you know, get our tip and hopefully learn something from them. Well, we, we love the tips and, uh, we, we've been happy to be able to share, um, some, some of those, uh, tips on getting smart.com. Let, let's, uh, draw this to a close with a quick lightning round. These are a couple of random topics that I have been thinking about this week. Um, the first one is agency, this word that more of us um, are, are using these days. What, what is learner agency? Is it a big deal? How, how does it, how do you develop it? In this lightning round, I'm not going to give a long answer on what agency is. It does mean different things to different people. But I think the best uh, definition is when a child has agency, they have a sense of I can. You know, they say they have a sense of I can if I try, not I already did, not, you know, it's done, but I can if I try. I think learner agency is elemental to learning and to effort and to achievement. A young person who does not believe I can is going to look bored in class. They're going to make trouble. They're going to not turn in their homework. They're going to be a constant source of frustration. And it's not really um, because they don't care. It's because they don't think they can. So learner agency to me is enormously important. And in every high-functioning classroom that I've seen, it's palpable how the teacher is intentionally trying to um, uh, you know, work on learning learner agency in, in every aspect of their class. I love that. Um, I, I thought I discovered how important this was two years ago uniquely. And then uh, I'd spent the weekend with Richard Lerner at, uh, at Tufts, and he sent me a stack of books that he's written over the years. Um, peer mentoring. It, does peer mentoring work? And is it as valuable for the, the mentee as the mentor? I think peer mentoring works. I wish there were more evidence on it. It's actually done more than it is studied. Um, but um, uh, some of my most uh, favorite teachers are champions uh, of, of peer mentoring students, helping other students learn. Um, and if you ask me, um, okay, does it help both sides? You know, so one student's teaching another student how to do a certain kind of problem that, you know, the first student knows how to do, the second student's kind of struggling. Um, they both benefit. Why does a struggling student benefit? Because only another student gets you. You're like, you know, speaking the same language. I mean, they're closer to where you are. So the, the student who's getting the, the, the help is 
benefiting. But the student who's doing the the tutoring or the mentoring, they're benefiting enormously. I did a random assignment study with um, collaborators, including my own student, Lauren. What we found is that when students give each other advice, when they mentor each other in this way, when they say, you know, here's a good way to not procrastinate. Here's a good way to stay off your cell phone when you have an important assignment. Here's how to handle your emotions when, um, when you fail a test, right? When students give that advice, when they mentor others, we showed that it actually helps them themselves. We followed these students who were encouraged to do just a few minutes of mentoring by writing down answers to the questions that I just gave you and a few more. And they actually improved their report card grades the following marking period according to official school records. And then we looked to see, is it just the girls? Is it just the boys? Is it just the rich kids? Is it just the kids who are not rich? Across the board, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, just a little bit of mentoring other people can actually help yourself, we think, because it reminds you of the things that you you know you should do. It also increases your confidence. All right. Next one is learning in cohorts. So I spent 20 years arguing for personalized learning and competency-based learning, and people ought to move at their own path. And then MOOCs launched, and it's all about individual learning. And then Seth Godin started Alt-MBA and then Akimbo and and sort of resurrected this idea of, of people learning in, in these small cohorts, these small groups of adding relationship. Does, does learning in cohorts make sense? I'll tell you how I'm teaching my own class. So I have three classes that I'm teaching right now. I have a class of MBA students, so Wharton MBA students. I have a class of undergraduate students, and I'm teaching high school students. Um, and so I'm teaching them all, you know, basically the metacognitive skills like growth mindset and and more, so that they can, you know, pursue their own goals. Um, and and I'll tell you that um, my favored class unit is the team. So typically education is just transacted as an individual, like your grades, your tests, your studying, your project, your term paper. But I intentionally put my students in teams, especially um, uh, because I feel like those social relationships are really the things that um, actually make people change uh, in ways that are meaningful emotionally. You know, there's only so much um, you can be um, influenced by that you can remember that it really feels like, you know, hey, this is part of who I am, that is just you as an individual. Human beings are social animals. So we were kind of designed to be in groups. Um, And so I'm not saying that personalized learning is a bad thing. Going back to both and, I believe in personalized learning and I believe that we have to find a way to unlock the power of social networks and relationships and teams and just that feeling that all all of us have had. Anytime anybody's been in a breakout room on Zoom over the last two years, wasn't that a kind of emotionally more meaningful experience than watching a YouTube video by yourself? So, uh, So I'm a big fan. Yeah, I think you've expressed the new learning design opportunity of our time of how you combine individual skill sprints with with team-based, cohort-based, you know, community-connected learning. It's an and both. Yes, uh, yes. And I haven't figured it out, Tom, but I'm, you know, and anybody who's working on it should let me know. I'd love to work alongside you. All right. Last one is robot manners. Should we teach kids to be nice to their digital assistants? <sighs> You know, I have yelled at Alexa um, more than I'm, you know, uh, probably prepared to confess to you um, in a public conversation. Um, But, you know, I don't. It can never understand me. So I'm yelling at it all the time. I know. And you just say things tersely, right? I know. I think I'm setting a bad example for my grandchildren. Should I be nice to you? 
Um, I, I will say this. I think that nobody really knows from a scientific research base, but I think there's two things to keep in mind. One is that, you know, we are always modeling. So actually my husband is very polite to Alexa. You know, he actually literally says things like, Alexa, please tell me the weather. Whereas I just say, Alexa, weather. Um, and, and so, you know, there's no harm, I think, in trying to model uh, politeness, kindness, and so forth. At the same time, I'll say that children are very smart and they figure out the things that are alive and the things that are not alive. And they, they won't, I think, um, you know, go off into the world as gruff, inhumane people because they saw, you know, mom or dad bark at the Alexa loudly because Alexa won't won't hear otherwise. So kids are very smart and they figure out these very context specific routines. So they understand like in this place, you know, I mean, anybody who's taken their kid to, you know, a friend's house and suddenly you have this p- completely polite child who crosses their hands in their laps and, you know, doesn't eat off of other people's plates and, you know, asks to be excused from the dining table. You're like, who is this kid? You're like, oh, they figure it out that like in a different place, you act differently. So I, I have confidence in kids. Their kids are smart. Uh, thank you for that. I'm going to try to be nicer um, to my home assistants. Uh, I'm sorry for all of the digital assistants that we just set off. Hey, uh, Dr. Angela Duckworth, thank you so much for joining us today. Tom, I want to tell you uh, how much I enjoyed this conversation. I think these are exactly the questions and you know, I got a little smarter on this. So um, thanks for having me. Everybody needs to go to characterlab.org and check out the tips. Sign up for your tip of the week. They are awesome. They're useful. If you're a parent, a teacher, uh, or lead a community organization, there's tips for you. Uh, Angela, thank you for being with us. Oh, you should also subscribe to No Stupid Questions. It's an awesome podcast where Angela and Dubner dive into a, a question of the week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Well, I look forward to our next conversation. And thanks to Mason Pasha, our producer. Thanks to the rest of the Getting Smart team for making this possible and keep innovating for equity. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.